3: From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's not supposed to rain in August in Southern California, much less get hit by a tropical storm. But that's what happened Sunday and Monday, bringing with it flooding and downed trees. We'll look at what Tropical Storm Hillary reveals about the future of extreme weather in the state. But first, another challenge for the planet. Plastic. We know it's everywhere, but LA Times reporter Suzanne Rust thought she was doing a good job minimizing it in her life until she tried tallying her plastic interactions for a week. What to do when avoiding plastic is impossible. That's all next on Forum. Join us. Welcome to Forum, I'm Mina Kim. As an environment reporter for the LA Times, Suzanne Rust is acutely aware of the pervasiveness of plastic. I read about it constantly and worry about it frequently, she says. Rust also works hard to minimize her exposure to it and thought she was doing pretty good until she agreed to her editor's suggestion of setting aside a week and chronicling her daily interactions with plastic. Suzanne Rust joins me now. Welcome to Forum, Suzanne. Hey, good morning. So what happened when you started tracking your plastic use?
4: Oh, um, well, as I mentioned in the article, uh, I quickly uh became very discouraged. I just as I as I started writing the this plastic journal, this diary every day, I just took a gander at what was sitting on my desk and I think like at some level I'd always known there was a lot of plastic around me, but literally everything I looked at was made of plastic. Um, and and that was sort of the the beginning of this of this journaling of where everywhere I looked, everything I did involved um at least some, it seemed some part, some part of whatever it was I was doing included plastic.
3: <laughs> right. Like you're cordless phone charger, USB cords, mouse pad, mouse, all of that kind of stuff that's just on your desk alone. What were the places where you were really surprised that you encountered plastic?
4: Oh, I mean, I i guess I wouldn't so much call it surprise, just sort of suddenly become became so aware, right? Like I would get in my car and suddenly I realized... You know, again, I had known this, but as I started to really pay attention, just about everything in my car is made of plastic (laughs) and for a good reason. Right. Or I get into the shower and, you know, I try to get bars of soap for shampoo and conditioner. But but even so, there's a plastic razor in my shower, Uh, you know, getting into the pool. I'm in I'm a swimmer. I swim every morning. I think every piece of equipment I use for swimming is made of plastic. It was just literally everything I do involves plastic. My shoes are made of plastic, my belts, my clothes half the time. Were you at least able to avoid a lot of single-use plastic? So um, that was really interesting. So again, sort of looking around me, there was was plastic everywhere, but a lot of these plastics are are really useful. And and we've all sort of, I guess, made a decision to use them because they make our lives easier. So my my bicycle helmet, for instance, right? I, I would much rather wear a light plastic bicycle helmet than, you know, maybe something made of wood. Um, <laughs> but, but with the single use stuff, um, yes, again, like I went to the grocery store and suddenly like, again, became very aware of how difficult it is to avoid single use plastic. So when my favorite examples was us buying my pasta like I always do in a cardboard box yet there is a little window cut out and in that window is a film of plastic you know that plastic can't be recycled that plastic I can't use it for anything else it's it's just going into the garbage or I buy you know glass jars of iced tea or something and again you open them but there's a there's a plastic film on the top of the bottle again which can't be used I mean there's just sort of no avoiding it
3: (laughs) Well, let me ask listeners, have you tried to do something like this? Avoid plastic for a week, a day, or to track your plastic use? How did it go? You can tell us at 866 or by posting on our social channels at KQED Forum or by emailing forum at kqed.org. Francesca writes, I tried to track my plastic use last week and I got disheartened after the first four days. I had to order a few items for an upcoming trip and the packaging was nuts. One three-inch item, already packaged, came inside a six-inch box, which was wrapped in plastic and then placed inside another box. (laughs) Suzanne, we did a show on microplastics last year, and and there's growing public awareness of those, those tiny, sometimes invisible bits of plastic that are everywhere, Um, though I learned some new things from your reporting. For example, that we likely have uh, credit cards worth of plastic that we consume every week,
4: yeah, it's astonishing, right? And and there was a it wasn't even in my story, but I read a study last week that showed that cardiologists have now documented that there are microplastics in human hearts. I mean, everywhere.
3: And then the other thing that I was struck by was the fact that the ocean may be the largest producer of microplastic. How so?
4: So that was that was something astonishing that I learned um several months ago and then was able to put that into the into this story as i was I was writing it um So for decades, we have been uh producing class plastics using plastics and discarding plastics. And so many of those plastics end up in the ocean. I mean of course, there are the plastics that are out there fishing nets and other sort of shipping materials, but so much of what we produce and then discard ends up in the ocean. So it means there is so much plastic right now in the ocean that is breaking down. And as it gets to the surface of the water, it evaporates and it just enters the air and the jet stream and the different atmospheric currents. And then it just goes around the world. So right now the ocean contains more plastic than any of the land on the planet. And it's the ocean because of this breakdown and then the evaporation that is generating the most microplastics.
3: Well, Robert writes, sailing from Hawaii to San Francisco, we saw plastics in the ocean every day. And that was 20 years ago. Uh, also the the part about how even newborns, you know, that first meconium <laughs> that they discharge, <laughs> they find plastic in that too. So I guess if, it is everywhere like that, right? because plastic never fully decomposes, it just breaks down into these smaller and smaller bits. Why is attempting to reduce your plastic consumption worth it um, Suzanne, <laughs> especially as a personal habit?
4: Well, I don't think we know yet enough about what plastic does to our bodies in terms of in terms of our health um clearly we understand that many plastics have things have additives that you know make them stretchy or make them hard um and we know those additives in many cases contain things like endocrine disruptors and there's been plenty of research on endocrine disruptors like bisphenol A and phthalates phthalates that that actually do um that are harmful to to human health we we don't know enough about plastic this is this is really an emerging area of of research and so to answer your question, I mean maybe it is completely benign but it it <laughs> I don't know. I think I think a lot of people would take pause at the thought that there is something that is getting into their bodies that they didn't uh, necessarily want in their bodies. Um and it is taking up space in there. And it, again, it could be completely benign. I I find that unlikely particularly with the, with the mm-hmm. additives on it, but I I think we should all take pause. And and the other thing I would add to that is that it isn't just humans, right? Almost every researcher I have spoken to as I've started researching plastics, and not necessarily for the story, but for others, you know, biologists, for instance, I was talking to a marine biologist who was studying invertebrates, and he was looking at phosphorescence. And he just sort of stumbled on the fact that these invertebrates he was looking at in San Diego in the waters off of San Diego were suddenly emitting different colors starting about 15 years ago. And he realized they were filled with microplastics. Um, again, almost every researcher I have spoken to sort of stumbles on plastics in the animals uh, or organisms that they are studying. And so we're sort of, we're participating in this grand experiment of, of just dribbling plastics on all life forms a- across the planet. and. And, and I, you know, I, I would I would offer out there that we should probably be paying co- close attention and doing what we can to prevent that before we we know what impact it's having.
3: Well, Noel tweets, I try to avoid plastic, but it's not about the individual. Oil companies know fossil fuels are on the way out and see expanding plastics manufacturing as their way to continue profits at the expense of the planet. Is that the plan for product manufacturers or the packaging industry as far as you know, that there really isn't a reduction in plastic production on the horizon? It's actually projected to grow?
4: So uh, my understanding is the plastic industry um, is uh, looking for growth over the next few years and decades. Uh, It won't be slowing down on that front. Um, I have not gone and done the research. Uh, I have talked to plenty of researchers who have told me um, that as fossil fuels are being reduced for, you know issues of, of you know in, in the areas of like petroleum and gasoline, um, fossil fuel manufacturers do see a market for for plastics. And so um, you know plastic packagers, uh, packaging uh, companies are finding new and creative ways to um, use that product.
3: Again, listeners, tell us if you've been surprised to encounter plastic in your everyday life and where. Have you tried to track your plastic use? How's it going? What do you do when you feel overwhelmed? Vicky tweets: I started ordering True Earth laundry sheets. Comes in cardboard. Give a crap toilet paper wrapped in paper, not plastic. Choosing glass containers for honey, etc., over plastic, and buying bulk when I can. Still, so much plastic—it's distressing. What What did you do? I mean, the title of your piece is "A Reporter Kept a Diary of Her Plastic Use." It was soul crushing. <laughs> Susan, <laughs> what, what did you do when it would feel overwhelming or your or soul
4: crushing? Well, it's kind of, um, it's a byproduct of the work I do, right? When you're an environment reporter, there are a lot of things you end up researching that are, that are soul crushing. So, you know, take deep breaths and, um, you know, try to, try to do what I can. But, you know, one of the things I, I wrote about and, and I, I think was, uh, this, this is probably more of like, um, a, a personal viewpoint on this. One of the things I discovered while I was documenting all of this, um, was, what a creature of comfort and convenience I am. So um, I went into a grocery store. I, you know, I have a, I have a big family and I I end up buying in bulk a lot and I buy salad because it's healthy for everybody. And so I got these spring greens and they come in this, you know, big plastic box. And I sat there thinking, oh God, you know, I'm looking at my shopping cart. There's one more thing of, of plastic. So I went to where they sell like lettuce by the head and spinach and figured I would take that because that would reduce the plastic. But I felt myself getting, I felt myself getting a little irritated and grumpy because I realized I was going to have to go home. And, you know, I work full time. We have five kids in the house. Uh, I've got a dog. I have to walk. I've got a lawn after, you know, there, there's thing after thing, after thing, I was suddenly going to have to spend time doing all of this. And, And that's when it sort of hit me. And, you know, again, I've heard other people say this, how insidious this all is, because it is so convenient. It does make our lives easier.
3: Yeah, I think you're hitting on something really important there. And we'll explore more of it after the break. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow, we sit down with Representative Adam Schiff to talk about why he wants to succeed Dianne Feinstein as California's next senator. Today, we're talking about how to navigate a world filled with plastic with LA Times environment reporter Suzanne Rust, who tracked her plastic encounters for a week and found it both overwhelming and sobering and eye-opening. Suzanne Rust is an investigative reporter specializing in environmental issues for the LA Times. and If you want to read about what happened, her piece is called A Reporter Kept a Diary of Her Plastic Use. It was soul-crushing. And just before the break, Suzanne, you were talking about how you realize that you're a creature of convenience and that you were getting a little grumpy when you were trying to buy a head of lettuce to make a salad to try to avoid the plastic salad container for your family of five and all the other things that you have to do. And, and it reminded me of a piece that I read in the New York Times where another reporter there tried to really avoid touching plastic for a day and found it incredibly difficult to do. And one of the things someone he turned to to feel a little better said that in some ways, it's not necessarily about plastic being the enemy, but it's about our culture of using something once and throwing it away. So I think some of the things that you're touching on and that piece was touching on was it really kind of also requires or maybe a better way to think about it as a mental shift as opposed to just trying to avoid plastic entirely.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, I I, uh, there probably does require a a sort of mental shift there. But but there really there there is this argument that plastic, you know, when I can walk into a store and I can get the pre-washed, you know, spring greens and all I have to do is open it and put it in. You know, it is also an issue of time um, energy and efficiency, right. For, for the, for the consumer. But that's where I, I sort of would take it to the next level is why is this my only, why can't I just walk into a store where there's a big bin of mixed greens that I could just, you know, grab and throw into my own reusable bag or container? Like what, you know, there, there, there are sort of like several levels to, to all of this. And one is the consumer and us making changes where, and when we can, but but also questioning why aren't these options more readily available. Yeah. Um, so. Well, let me
3: bring Judith Eng into the conversation. Judith Eng is president of Beyond Plastics, and Eng served as a regional administrator with the EPA during the Obama administration. Judith, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you, especially with Suzanne Rust, who just writes incredible pieces, including this one. <laughs> oh,
3: thanks, Judith. All right. So, Judith, what... What alternatives are there? I mean, we've got to be innovating in this space so that we do have other options uh, than that big plastic tub for your mixed greens and for making accessing that easier, as Suzanne is pointing out.
1: Yeah, I talk, I call those tubs plastic coffins. And I think um, what Suzanne Rust's article illustrates is we don't have a lot of choice as consumers. Someone is taking that choice away from us to avoid plastics. It's impossible to do a shop in an American supermarket and not buy something that's plastic no matter how careful you are. But there are alternatives there. Um, I try to avoid plastic whenever I can and reach for metal, glass, cardboard, paper products because they are typically made from recycled material and when I put them in my recycling bin at home, there's a much higher likelihood that it will get recycled um, more than plastic, which most plastic does not. But, you know, we've all learned when we were little kids, reduce, reuse, recycle. Reduce and reuse is the most important on that waste hierarchy. I'm usually not in favor of hierarchies, but there are a lot of waste hierarchies around. Um, doing things like bringing your own um reusable bag to the store, your own reusable coffee cup when you go to your favorite local coffee shop. But all of those steps, no matter how careful we are, only get us so far. We have alternatives to plastics that are, that are available, but plastics is cheap. One reason is because it's made from fossil fuels and chemicals. Both are heavily subsidized. And when I say it's cheap, it might be cheap for the restaurant owner to buy plastic packaging rather than, you know, preferably reusable packaging. But plastic really isn't cheap when you look at the tremendous health damage done by plastic production yeah. in communities all over, for instance, Louisiana and Texas. And so, it, you know, it all depends on how broad your, your um, economic equation is.
3: Yeah. Well, you were excited about Packaging innovations by a company, for example, Ecovative, I think. Is that is that what they're
1: E-co- called? Ecovative in Green Island, New York.
3: Yeah, that they're doing stuff with mushrooms? What's that about?
1: <laughs> sure. So they wanted to set out and find an alternative to polystyrene foam or uh, styrofoam packaging. And so they collected agricultural waste from local farms and they um, transform it into packaging that is basically made from agricultural waste, no chemicals. Uh, It's mycelium-based. And then when you're done with it, you literally can put it in your backyard compost bin. I really applaud that innovation, but I also want to point out that it is extremely rare. Um, These innovations are, are not mainstreamed. Uh, They're often far more expensive than alternative material. And so to prompt that innovation, we need new laws that set up environmental standards for packaging. Just like if you look at the automobile industry, you know, the big car companies didn't shift to better fuel efficiency until EPA made them do it. And we see this increase in electric vehicles because of the Clean Air Act. So we need a similar approach on plastics reduction, particularly starting with uh, plastic packaging. Suzanne,
3: what have you seen that lawmakers are doing to encourage less plastic? Uh,
4: they are in certain areas of the country. Uh, and Judith would know the, all of this better than than I. But certainly in California, um, there have been uh, uh, laws that have been... Uh, that are enacted and that are you know sort of in the process of reducing um single use plastics uh in the state. I know I think Washington has one, New York um again Judith would know sort of the the landscape better but but I and and I'll, I'll let her uh tell you more about that except with just the qualifier that there are also states in this country though that prevent laws like plastic ban laws uh, from for like local cities municipalities to to reduce plastic consumption so it's kind of a kind of a hodgepodge out there
3: yeah do you just want to add something quickly there Judith yeah there are four states that have
1: packaging reduction laws on the books varying de- varying degree of effectiveness but um suzanne is right there we also have bans on bans And that's because of the plastics industry has so many lobbyists in every state capital. I mean, when I show up at a city council meeting in a small community uh, that's considering, for instance, a plastic bag ban or a polystyrene ban, there's always a guy in a really expensive suit from the chemical industry who announces that he's there from Washington and D.C. And the local government drowning in polystyrene or plastic bags shouldn't take action because we can just recycle all of this plastic. And it turns out that that's just not true. Over 90% of plastics never get recycled, even though there are deceptive uh, recycling labels that suggest to consumers that you can recycle plastic. But it's, you know, beyond plastics, and the last beach cleanup did a report uh, a couple of years ago. We documented the plastic recycling rate is only 5 to 6%. So even though we have very little choices, uh, do everything you can to avoid plastic and do not put most of that into your recycling bin. Only things that are marked number one plastic, which is PET plastic, or number two plastic, which is HDPE. Everything else should not be placed in the recycling bin. Hmm.
3: Well, let me go to Jonathan in San Francisco. Jonathan, you're on.
2: Hey, what's going on? You know, as you guys were speaking, I started trying to find some of the information I was going to talk about. And, um, you know, I I think what what piqued my interest in this was the, uh, I think it's called the Great Garbage Patch. And when I started looking at what the Great Garbage Patch was, I started looking at the plastic that I was using every day. And it got me curious, what is happening to all the plastic that I'm using? Is it not being recycled? I'm seeing people walking around with bags and boxes every day going to recycling centers. So I got curious and I started looking up what is really causing all of this. And like one of your speakers just brought up, that's when I became aware of how the fossil fuel industry is tied into plastic production. And somehow along the rabbit hole of YouTube, I ended up on a debate between, I think her name was Marsha Blackburn and Bill Nye, the science guy, which I grew up loving Bill Nye, the science guy. And Marsha Blackburn tried to make the point that recycling and reducing emissions and all these things to protect humanity is the cost-benefit analysis wasn't profitable enough. And it got me thinking, if the cost-benefit analysis of keeping humans alive isn't profitable, where are we really headed <laughs> in this discussion? Mm-hmm. And like one of your students caught up, you have to pass laws to force companies to do this. Otherwise, they will not. And, um, you know, I really believe that eventually one day somebody is going to come up with a way to really recycle most of the things that we consume. But I don't know when it's going to happen. Hopefully it does. But yeah, this is yeah. this is a discussion we had. Bad. Well,
3: Jonathan, your journey, surprise being taken aback, it sounds... Unfortunately, all too familiar as people try to dig into, you know, how do we get our, our arms around this plastic issue? Ron asks, is it time for a plastic tax? What do you think, Do you think? Well,
1: I doubt if elected officials will want to do a tax that is high enough that would actually reduce plastic consumption. I mean, I think a tax on the petrochemical industry is not a bad idea, but I, I don't think a tax per se on, on consumers but you know your listeners are really smart. I am. I'm always hesitant to be negative about uh, recycling. You know I love recycling. I started my town's recycling program in a rural community in upstate New York. But here's when I tell you there's no Santa Claus. Plastics recycling has been an abysmal failure. Keep recycling metal, glass, paper, cardboard, compost your yard waste and food waste. But if you care about the plastics issue, the focus has to be on reduction, not recycling. And if I could just spend one minute or less explaining why plastics recycling has been
3: a hoax. Please, because um, we have a lot of questions about it, about recycling generally. So yes, go right ahead.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so when you recycle an aluminum can, for instance, you can recycle that into a new aluminum can. With plastics, we have many different plastic resins thousands of different chemical additives and plastics in all different colors so for instance if you have a bright orange hard plastic detergent uh, bottle on top of your washing machine and then in your refrigerator you have a clear plastic squeezable um, uh, ketchup bottle those two containers cannot be recycled together they're two different different chemicals different resins Uh, different chemical additives. And so you know who has known for decades that plastics fundamentally are not recyclable? The plastics industry. And yet they've spent millions of dollars deceptively fooling the public into not worrying about all the plastics we're using, just toss it in your recycling bin. And then that becomes a headache for recyclers because they don't have markets for over 90% of the plastics that are collected. So I know, you know, there's such enthusiasm about recycling. Stay excited about recycling, but not plastics recycling, because it's a dead end. It's never gotten the double digits of recycling rates.
3: Well, Evan tweets, I think it's worth pointing out that everything plastic can be made from hemp. Mickey on Discord writes, I bring my own bags. Even a small monetary value might incentivize some. Target gives five cents back for every bag you bring in. Let me go to caller Greg in Oakland. Greg, you're on.
6: Hey, good morning. I, um, th- I, I, I want to say, hey, Jonathan, I, really touch- I was touched by his call. Um, I am I'm a father and a husband, and I am the cook in our house. And I've been trying to get rid of the plastic in the kitchen because my wife is like, hey, let's try to get rid of the plastic in the kitchen. And it is incredibly difficult. We have we have. And what I've learned is that we've really adjusted our lifestyle to the use of this stuff and what it's really going to take. I also have the first world problem of getting to go to Europe and, and getting to go to France and Italy in particular a couple of times a year each because of my work. And they treat it completely different. They go shopping each day. They give time to things that we don't we make plastic containers for salad that have anti-wilting chemicals in them we do all this stuff to create convenience and what we really need to do is give more of our time to the things that can't be preserved or that shouldn't be preserved or the things that are in the moment living foods um, um gathering around the table instead of packing our food in plastic bags And um, I wanted to ask, especially Judith, but Suzanne, too, like, um, what is the reality of changing how we look at our time? How how can we regain that sense that it is a good idea to go together to the farmer's market instead of the store to bring home smaller quantities, to not engender this use of plastic Mm. everywhere?
3: Uh, Greg, thanks, Suzanne. You got any ideas for, for Greg or any thoughts on on what he's sort of asking?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think uh you alluded to this before, Amina, that we need to that there needs to be a, a mental shift. Um but I also I I think this sort of gets to the to the heart of all of this. There there will always be people who can take the time to do this but there will be people who can't. That's just not an option. They don't have the time. They don't live in areas where there are farmers markets readily available. They don't have the opportunity to go to grocery stores that that provide different options of getting your produce or, or other um, food items. Um, so yes, there's a certain segment of the population that could try to make a, a mental shift and really sort of, you know, again, really embrace this idea of living in the moment of um, of making the effort to get produce and other food items that that aren't wrapped in plastic. but but the, the the simple fact is there are a lot of people who just who just can't and they don't have the opportunity.
3: Yeah. Well, Matthew writes, there is way too much plastic in packaging, but it's worth being clear that plastic is a very useful material. Also, some plastic is perfectly safe, specifically polyethylene and polypropylene without additives. These are very simple molecules, just carbon and hydrogen that are very durable and easily recyclable. Suzanne, you tried to touch on, yes, where it is useful. It makes your car lighter. It makes it more energy efficient as a result, and so on. So let me leave it to you, Judith. Tell me, where is the best use of plastic if you had to pick and say where we can say that plastic is okay.
1: <laughs> well, if you, if you're pushing me into this corner, I will, I will
3: um, <laughs> for just 30 seconds. Cause we're almost at the end.
1: On Plastics by the way, um, durable plastics that are used over and over again, car bumpers, bicycle helmets. And those are not the things that we typically see littered on the beach or in our parks Uh, 40% of plastics is single-use plastic packaging. We know that there's toxic additives leaching into food and beverages. So let's start with that first, because I also think it gets us furthest along in terms of protecting public health. But there are many, many applications in the industrial sector that they use plastic because they have for decades. It's cheap, but it's not really cheap.
3: Well, Judith thank thank you for that. President of Beyond Plastics, former regional administrator with the EPA, really appreciate having you on. My pleasure. And Suzanne Russ, thanks so much for keeping that reporter's diary and inspiring today's segment. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Suzanne Russ is investigative reporter specializing in environmental issues for the LA Times. Coming up, we'll talk about... Tropical Storm Hillary and its impact. So stay with us for that. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tropical Storm Hillary brought record summer rainfall to much of Southern California, triggered the state's first ever Tropical Storm Watch, and left a trail of flash floods, debris flows, school cancellations, and power outages across the region. How were you affected, or what are you wondering about the future of weather events like this for California? You can email forum at kqed.org. Post on our social channels at KQED Forum or call 866-733-6786. Diana crofts Palayo is Assistant Director of Crisis Communication for the California Governor's Office of Emergency Services and joins me now. Diana, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you. So where is the
7: state focused right now? What areas were hardest hit and need help with recovery? Gosh, uh, thank you so much for that question. And really, we have been nonstop now for the past few days, um, really trying to help people, you know, prepare for and now, you know, recover from uh, the Tropical Storm Hillary. And so currently we have crews positioned in L.A. County, Riverside, Mono, Inyo, Imperial, San Bernardino, Tulare, Kern and Orange counties. And these are mostly swift water rescue teams and also Um, you know, through our mutual aid system, firefighters and, and other fire engines. So for us, it's really kind of more of that cleanup. It's the flooding, uh, the debris flows, any mud flows, and really kind of helping communities, um, you know, get back on their feet.
3: And and so, what do you see as the biggest challenges to achieving that? Uh, I'm wondering what the state is encountering that they will definitely need to be focused but prioritized on with regard to achieving the kinds of things that that you are setting out to do.
7: Yeah, you know, and I'll say Daniel will probably have some some good anecdotes given given his background. And, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm an emergency manager. And I think, you know, the work that we're doing here is that, you know, we really pre-positioned a lot of resources ahead of the storm. Mm. Uh, We're typically a no-notice state. And so we'll get an earthquake and you don't get much notice about it or maybe if a quick wildfire moves through. And so I think with the hurricane, we were really able to understand, based on data and research, you know, kind of what the trends were and, you know, where to strategically place resources. And so we were able to do that pretty efficiently and effectively across the state. And so really now it's understanding, you know, what the extent of the damage is, you know, and how we can kind of help people move forward. And so we've had probably over 5,000 crews statewide, um, you know, just trying to help in the response and recovery.
3: So we heard about some homes with some serious devastation in Cathedral City, where, where barely anyone in that desert region has flood insurance. How concerned are you about that?
7: I think it, I think it's a concern. I think ultimately, you know, we um, are seeing more complex and interrelated natural disasters than we have seen in the past. I think, you know, our first responders on on the ground are seeing it intimately, and so are the are the communities. And so, I think ultimately, what we're going to do is do what we can as a state to support um, our local communities, and then also you know, see if there's if there's anything else we can do, either through, you know, private nonprofit partnerships or through the federal government. And so we won't know that until we get exact um, estimates and understanding of the damage caused.
3: There are folks uh, after Hillary who were saying that it was not quite as destructive, or uh, maybe that some of the forecasts or warnings of or dire warnings were a little bit overhyped, and maybe next time they won't go get the sandbag or so on. What would you want to say to folks who are thinking that?
7: I think that any amount of, um, you know, work that we did to ready people was was worth it. I think we would hate to have a situation like we have had in other states or or in the past where, you know, people were not prepared to confront a natural disaster. And so for us, it is really important you know, not only to have that collaboration between, you know, state and local governments um, for people to be ready, but also families to be ready themselves. And so, you know, these emergencies are only going to get more extreme and and possibly, you know, more complex. And so, you know, we all have to do our part to be ready.
3: Diana crofts Palio Assistant Director of Crisis Communication for California Governor's Office of Emergency Services. Really appreciate you coming on.
7: Thank you so much. We're going to turn
3: now to look at the science behind the storm with Daniel Swain, climate scientist at UCLA's Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. He's also the author of a new extreme weather page a day 2024 calendar, a year of fire, tornadoes, atmospheric rivers and other wild weather events. Welcome back to Forum, Daniel.
8: Uh, Thanks for inviting me back.
3: And Diana was talking about how weather events in California are going to become more extreme, complicated, and so on. And I think the question on a lot of people's minds is, California going to see a lot more of, well, specifically tropical storms? Are we facing a future with hurricanes
8: Well, you know, uh, for obvious reasons, I've been getting this question a lot over the past week because this is the first time in a long while that California has seen a tropical storm, uh, a true actual intact tropical storm somewhere in the state. Uh, it's, it's, you know, something that was rare historically, depending on exactly how you count it. The last official landfall, meaning that a tropical storm that went from uh, sea to land was back in 1939. Although there have been other tropical storms that have made close passes on California and brought extreme summer rainfall to the mountains and deserts. All that said, this is definitely a rare event in a historical context. So understandably folks are asking this question, particularly in a year Where globally, you know, we're just shattering all kinds of temperature and precipitation records all around the planet. Uh, So it turns out that the answer is pretty complicated. Tropical storms in California have always been a bit of an edge case. Uh, They can be a fairly big deal when they do occur, but they occur so infrequently uh, that oftentimes we essentially have uh, bigger things to worry about. You know, we have uh, the potential for strong uh, winter storms and flooding just about in any year. Uh, We have the potential for severe and record-breaking heat waves and increasingly uh, record-breaking wildfires, again, uh, almost every year, whereas this is something that happens infrequently. The interesting thing is that there hasn't been a whole lot of research uh, on the effects of climate change on the likelihood of a landfalling tropical cyclone. Uh, tropical cyclone just being a collective term for tropical storms and hurricanes. Tropical storms are just a weaker iteration of the same type of storm that hurricanes are. And the fundamental reason for this, uh, why California doesn't see more tropical storms or hurricanes, there's really three reasons, which I'll quickly summarize. One is that the ocean off of California is just too cold, and warm tropical oceans are hurricane fuel. So, no warm tropical oceans, no fuel for hurricanes or tropical storms. Number two uh, is that the uh, prevailing winds in the tropics, where hurricanes form, blow from east to west. That tends to st- steer storms. Uh, away from California rather than toward the West Coast most of the time. And the third thing is essentially that the atmosphere uh, at this relatively subtropical latitude uh, in the summer months, we do uh, in- exist at the edge of the subtropics, even if it doesn't feel like it on Ocean Beach in San Francisco in July. Uh <sighs> the uh the reality is the atmosphere is very stable and actually not that moist above the marine layer it's dry and stable above that very thin layer of uh, cold clammy oceanic uh, fog that you sometimes get so all three of those factors work against tropical storms and hurricanes in california what might happen in the future well we don't know exactly because no one's really done a formal study on it but just going on a little bit on a limb Putting on the meteorologist and climate scientist hat we do know the oceans are warming so that first of those three barriers is probably going to weaken somewhat Mm -hmm. Uh, not enough to produce hurricanes that intensify as they approach california because the oceans are just far too cold for that even with a few degrees of warming But it might make it more easy for these storms to become powerful hurricanes off the coast of Mexico and then essentially weaken less quickly than they used to on the rare occasions when the wind patterns are favorable for them to move towards Southern California. So the answer is a qualified, uh, it's plausible, but probably to a limited extent, it doesn't seem like this is likely to become a dramatically bigger problem in the future. Uh, And that's in contrast to other sorts of weather extremes in California, which clearly are getting a lot worse and will continue to get a lot worse uh, in a warming climate. Almost every other type uh, of weather extreme, I think, falls into that category.
3: Yeah, well, that makes me feel a tiny bit bit better. Um, but I did want to ask you about how Hillary behaved once it did hit Southern Californ- California, because I understand it behaved a little bit differently than a lot of folks thought it would. For example, it didn't hit say, San Diego or Orange County as hard because it moved eastward a little quicker than people thought, but then sat over West LA and Ventura County?
8: Yeah, so tropical cyclones, especially ones that are undergoing what is known as an extratropical transition, so essentially where they uh, metamorphosize from a storm that is fueled primarily by warm water uh, to a storm that's fueled primarily by the factors that normally Uh, bring about storm systems at more temperate latitudes, which is temperature contrasts. Uh, in the atmosphere, and as it did so, it did so essentially somewhere between the the Imperial Beach on the Mexican border with California uh, and downtown LA. So as it as that transition process started, it gets a little bit messy. Uh, and you know, the National Hurricane Center, for its part, which is responsible for issuing uh, all of the the watches and warnings associated with tropical storms and hurricanes, which by the way, uh, they had never issued a watch or warning for anywhere in California <laughs> right. previously. Uh, this was the first time that had ever happened. Uh, the you know the, they, they issue something that's called the cone of uncertainty, some, some, somewhat jokingly, but it that's pretty much what it is. It's a cone of where they think the most likely range of where the tropical cyclone center is going to end up, and you really can't distinguish between the likelihood of it ending up on one side of the cone versus the other. It's essentially the irreducible part of the forecast uncertainty. And Hillary did remain within that cone of projected uncertainty. It just ended up kind of on the edge of the envelope at times. And that can be true because these storm centers do tend to bounce around a bit just due to random stochastic processes in the atmosphere. And, you know, as you mentioned, the way that this particular one happened to bounce around, it did some weird things where it may have slightly reduced the amount, the extremity uh, of the rainfall rates in some parts of southeastern California, which perhaps averted even worse flooding. The potential yeah. was certainly there, by the way. One of the big concerns was that the storm had the potential to produce rainfall at rates of up to three or four inches per hour in the deserts. Again, these are deserts that often don't receive much more than four inches in a year. Right. So, you know, a year's worth of rainfall in an hour in some places, obviously, uh, would be a huge problem. We didn't quite see rates. We saw an inch to two inches per hour, which is still very heavy. But that is, you know, that is about half of what the potential was. So, in a certain sense, even though the total amount of precipitation in the forecast was right on target, the rates weren't quite as extreme as they could have been because. Ironically, there was a little bit too much cloudiness. If there had been a little bit more sunshine before the storm arrived, there would have been more atmospheric instability and that would have driven stronger downpours and thunderstorms. So ironically, we're saved by the uh, by the cloud deck in some parts (laughs) of Southern California, I think. Um, Still record rainfall. You know, as you mentioned, many places saw their wettest summer day ever uh, in over a hundred years of record keeping. So that's, uh, no, no slouch by any means. And there was severe flood damage in some places, but I do think we largely avoided the kind of really catastrophic flash flooding that was plausible, but ultimately really didn't seem to materialize in too many places.
3: It rained a lot, but not as fast. Luckily, you are listening to Forum, and we are talking with Daniel Swain about Hurricane, or not Hurricane, Tropical Storm, (laughs) Hillary, thank God. Um, And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Pete writes, I heard a climate scientist say on NPR that Twitter has become absolutely worthless for spreading needed information (laughs) on disasters. I know, Daniel, that you've talked about how bad and unreliable the information was on Twitter for this storm. Where can people get reliable information
8: well, you know, as much as I hate to say it, uh, I, 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 that's that is essentially my sentiment uh, about how you know Twitter or X, I suppose as it now is, yeah. was once really a, a truly unique source for real time information in disasters. I mean, this was true for a wide range of things over the years, from from wildfires, minute by minute, you know, floods, hurricanes, uh, wars, mass shootings, you know, all sorts of things. And it is not uh, any longer. Uh, I, in fact, this weekend during Hillary, I, I really realized this, I think most acutely for the first time is that 90 to 95% of the information that I was seeing, even as a pretty savvy user of Twitter was either fake, uh, like literally uh, photo, like poorly Photoshopped images. Um, ironically, none of this is the good generative AI stuff everyone's so worried about. We're still talking like Photoshop um you know sharks on the 405 freeway you know like things that maybe uh, but then there was the less obvious stuff there, there were there was real footage being posted uh claiming to be you know massive flooding in la or something but it was actually from you know uh iran uh three years ago or peru earlier this year so it looks real because it was real but it wasn't la it wasn't this event uh, so at this point i don't think it's a reliable source anymore in terms of where you can go of course You know the federal government directly has their own websites you know there's weather.gov for the national weather service there is the national hurricane center uh, of course for hurricanes that that probably won't be relevant again for california anytime soon but uh, it is out there so there are these official information sources but i think the gap is that they aren't still so great at instantaneous information in real time if you want to know what's going on down your street during a natural disaster Twitter was the essentially the place to go. And now that it's not, there really isn't an alternative. And that is actually starting to become a big problem. I know a lot of people who study disaster response and emergency response and weather and wildfires and climate are all collectively very concerned about the fact it probably wasn't great that it was all relegated to this one private entity to begin with. But in the absence of an alternative you know that's where it was so i think a lot of us right now are really looking to the next uh leader for this sort of information in real time i hope one emerges i'm still on twitter but uh i am trying to figure out what the what the you know the best way to, to proceed is in the absence of an alternative that is good for tech centric mass messaging during uh, where real time information during emergencies is really important
3: Yeah. Well, glad that you are. and glad that you're on today. So just in terms of broader impacts of what just happened with this tropical storm, does it mean good news for the rest of the year when it comes to wildfires, for example?
8: Well, I do think it, you know, clearly that amount of rain, I mean, we're talking most of Southern California saw at least two or three inches, and in some spots saw up to 10 or so. So that's a lot of water. Uh, It definitely attenuates fire season down in the southern I'm almost calling it the the southern uh, uh, half-ish at an angle (laughs) because it rained actually significantly all the way up uh, into the southern and central Sierra in some places, not so much the northern Sierra or the coast ranges of the Bay Area, but the rest of the state got a pretty good soaking at a minimum, uh, anywhere from a good soaking to a record amount of rain. In southern California, that probably does really attenuate fire season for at a minimum a few weeks and probably a bit longer than that. It is important to remember that Southern California's fire season extends later into the autumn and even the winter sometimes yeah. because you can get uh, prolonged dry spells in the fall and early winter uh, along with strong offshore Santa Ana winds. So if you get you know a major heat wave in Southern California in a few weeks followed by a you know a 70 80 mile an hour Santa Ana down, downslope wind event with relative humidity of you know five or ten percent. I think fire season could come back to life down there but for the next few weeks at least and possibly for longer i really do think that's good fire season news down south for sure the one part of the state that is seeing really active fires right now in fact one of those fires moved um, uh, toward populated areas last night up in northwestern california far northwestern california did really did not see much if any precipitation from this event so the one place that really could have used it Uh, due to active fires, didn't get it. The Pacific Northwest didn't really see it either, nor did British Columbia. All these places are gonna send a lot of smoke southward toward California possibly in the coming days and weeks. But in terms of fires in California, especially Southern California, this definitely is good news in the short term. I don't know if it's quite enough to end fire season down there. Uh, I I wouldn't make that call until later. And Northern California is a different story, but yes, I think that there is some good news there.
3: Climate scientist of UCLA, Daniel Swain, check out his Extreme Weather page-a-day calendar of 2024. Thanks so much, Daniel.
8: Thanks again for having me.
3: Thanks, Grace Wan and Dan Zoll, for producing today's segment. Thank you, listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the heising Simons Foundation.